It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. It's already been a day, and this is getting to be a recurring theme here, as Republicans bring a procedural vote to the floor of the House to engage debate, not actually even pass a bill, on defense spending and uh, this didn't end the way the leader hoped. On this vote, the yeas are 212, the nays are 216. The resolution is not adopted. Yeah, the House now for a third time. You hear a little groan there, failing to start debate on this Pentagon spending bill, $826 billion, uh, which really is making uh, everyone feel like a shutdown may be more likely or imminent here. It's going to be a working weekend, at least on Saturday, before everyone goes home for the Jewish holiday. And even if a CR gets passed in the House, uh, it doesn't stand a chance in the Senate. That's where changes will happen and things got get very complicated. And then there's, of course, uh, the, we've got the holdouts here. The rogues in the Republican conference, namely Matt Gates, who says no continuing resolution, especially if it requires Democrats. If Speaker McCarthy relies on Democrats to pass a continuing resolution, uh, I would call the Capitol moving truck to his office pretty soon because my expectation would be he'd be out of the Speaker's office quite promptly. <laughs> he always has a way. Uh, speaking with reporters outside of the House, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene weighing in in a conversation earlier with Bloomberg. There were a bunch of mics around, but speaking with Bloomberg about the continuing resolution. Again, that's the stopgap bill that would keep the government from closing. DOA, she says. As far as the CR, we had a over two hour meeting. And what I heard in the meeting is there were seven or eight people that were a no on it. And so I, it's to me, it's dead in the water unless they change something. Dead in the water. And then, of course... There's Donald Trump, who got to Truth Social last evening here. I need to pull it up so I can uh, do this properly. Uh, Truth Social to uh, talk about his take on this. Now, remember, Kevin McCarthy has been an ally. Some even arguing that this is why he brought up the impeachment inquiry was to help Donald Trump. Who writes a very important deadline It's approaching at the end of the month. Republicans in Congress, he says, can and must defund all aspects of crooked Joe Biden's weaponized government. I'll skip down a little bit here. Use the power of the purse and defend the country. He says this is also the last chance to defund these political prosecutions against me and other patriots. So we've got a problem here at a critical time here. What did I say? Nine days and we're done and we can't figure out a stopgap, never mind the whole thing. That's why uh, we wanted to talk as well with Mark Goldwine, Senior Vice President, Senior Policy Director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Mark, it's great to see you. Welcome back. 
Um, we have a lot that we could get into here. I'd be curious your thoughts on some of the options. But is the committee kind of like everyone else in Washington and expecting a shutdown at this point? <laughs> uh, we've been actually doing some surveys of experts, and I'll say the odds of the shutdown are going way up. Way up. Um, you, you always assume they're going to do something at the last minute to avoid it until they don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's hard to see how we get from here to there. If you're following this, you know, you're playing along in your home game, they think they can pass a CR in the House, the Republican-led House. Then it goes to the Senate. They attach Ukraine funding. They attach disaster relief. It comes back to the House. That's where the problem lies, right? Well, the House can't even pass a CR yet. Well, uh, they've been having, they can't even get their own I'm CR. I'm talking best-case scenario. Best-case scenario. Yeah. And the House and Senate, not only did they disagree on things like Ukraine and disaster, they disagree on the top line. Normally, a continuing resolution just takes last year's numbers uh-huh. and extends them with small modifications. But uh, the House wants to go significantly below last year's numbers. And the Senate, in some ways, wants to go above. So they don't even have fundamental agreement on the number, let alone the things that are attached to it. And it's happening against the backdrop of this uh, you know, test of the Speaker's authority. Uh, does that feel real to you, or is Matt Gates just you know, having fun entertaining his followers. Well, you have to understand the the rules they set up for the speaker mm-hmm. uh, puts him in constant state of vulnerability. So in the past, uh, the majority of the majority was kind of the rule. If the speaker Republican speaker could get most Republicans on a bill, he'd put it forward. Mm-hmm. Um, S- speaker McCarthy seems to need almost the entirety of the majority. That's a really different criteria. Yeah, boy, it sure is. Uh, the Problem Solvers Caucus is reportedly working up something here. They've agreed on a plan uh, that would, in fact, uh, make a lot of people happy if it ever saw the light of day. It calls for all 12 appropriations bills to be passed by January 11th, right? So this would actually push us through the end of the year here. It would include Ukraine. It would include disaster relief. And it would create a debt and deficit commission. Now, I don't know if this is going anywhere, but the idea of a debt and deficit commission you know, kind of brings us back a little bit to the super committee and some of the, the swings that we've taken at this before. Would the committee support something like that? Because I believe that, that that's something that, that you've encouraged in the past. How about in the form it's being proposed here? Oh, very strongly. We just put out a letter with um, 11 of some of the top policy experts on the left, right, and center, all calling for a fiscal commission. Mm-hmm. The appropriations we're talking about right now, they cover a quarter of the budget. Right. So that leaves three quarters of the budget undiscussed, plus all the revenue. This, this commission is probably our best way forward to have an honest adult bipartisan conversation mm-hmm. over Medicare, over tax policy, over Social Security, and over other parts of the budget that, frankly, politicians are uh, too excited to beat each other over the head with and not interested enough in solving mm-hmm. when it's out in public. Interesting. Do you have a sense of what's going to happen in the next week here, even if Republicans do finish their work this weekend, the shutdown would happen at the fiscal year, not, say, a month from now, because you don't expect a CR to pass. Or is this just anyone's guess? It's anyone's guess. I, I, I think they could come together at the last minute with a short kick the can. Yeah, We could be in a shutdown and then we have to reopen. I hope that whatever they do, they take very seriously this idea of a fiscal commission because mm-hmm. we're not going to solve any of our budgetary challenges just looking at the defense and the non-defense appropriations. Remembering, of course, there was a debt ceiling deal uh, 
What if he brought that back to the floor now? What would happen? <laughs> so what's interesting is the whole purpose of that debt ceiling deal mm-hmm. was to set the number yeah. so that the appropriators could fight about other stuff. And we're but still arguing over that number. We're still arguing it's over like the number. It's like the deal never happened. The House wants to go way below the deal. The Senate actually wants to go above the deal. Nobody actually wants to stick to the deal. But he passed it at one point. Could he do it again? It's just amazing. You go away for August recess and you come back and we're in a different reality somehow. Yeah, it'd be interesting to ask the folks that voted for it um, whether you support the deal but you just don't support uh, what would come out of it uh, or not. Remember, again, there's this unanimity among majority problem, right? So not every Republican voted for that deal. Uh, Perhaps the same ones that voted for the deal would vote for the appropriations, Mm -hmm. but then Speaker McCarthy uh, is at risk of of a vote of no confidence effectively. What does it do having – Vladimir Zelensky here, as I was saying with Jack, you know, right in the middle of all this, the motorcade rolls up. He's meeting with leadership, at least on the Senate side, and he's meeting with the Speaker as well, not the so much the rank and file. Um, there's a bit of a disruption here and it reminds everybody of this thing that we can't seem to agree on. Does his arrival make it more likely that Ukraine will get another dose of funding or is it interrupting the flow? You know, maybe a little bit of both. Um, I, I do think that Ordinarily, the need for emergency or disaster funding actually can kind of skid the wheels, grease the wheels, excuse me. Yeah, right. Um, so the hurricane money needed in Florida, et cetera. Um, but in this case, the Ukraine funding has become controversial in some circles, and it may actually be an impediment to a final deal. Does the committee want to hear a conversation about revenue, or is it just about funding responsibly, living within our means? It seems we never talk about the potential of hiking taxes to try to close this gap. We have to talk about revenue. Look, there's about $1.5 trillion a year we spend through the tax code on various tax breaks. The idea that we would talk about uh, the real spending but not the tax spending is is a little bit silly. And it's another reason I think this fiscal commission can help. Mm -hmm. Um, I I worked on the Simpson-Bowles commission in 2010, on the super committee in 2011. Hmm. And Democrats and Republicans, I do. Democrats and Republicans both agreed we need to talk about entitlements. We need to talk about revenue. Yeah. Did Donald Trump just uh, guarantee a shutdown? Did you see what he put on Truth Social? Uh, did something something new? Or He's uh, urging Republicans to vote against what he calls a very important deadline at the end of the month. Republicans in Congress can and must defund, he says, all aspects of crooked Joe Biden's weaponized government. And I could read the rest, but... Well, there's a couple of ways this can go down, right? The one is that uh, the House Republicans come together mm-hmm. on something they can negotiate with the Senate. And the other is, is that this is a bipartisan bill. One way or another, we are not going to have the government shut down for the entire next fiscal year. So even if it shuts down, it will reopen <laughs> at some point, and we will need the votes for that. You like to think it will. Let's hope we're not about to make history. Mark Goldwine, great to have you back. Uh, someone we want to stay in touch with while this is being figured out. From the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, our neighbors here in Washington, where he's Senior VP, Senior Policy Director. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We'll assemble our panel next. John Sidalides, Lincoln Mitchell are with us, only here on Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. 
You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Kaylee Lines, here she is in Hello. a whole different studio. Good to see you. <laughs> you. Actually, you were up on Capitol Hill for a good chunk of the morning, and I was, was too. Impossible to get around because every street is closed around the Capitol because Zelensky, well, at least was there. Um, and pretty interesting here. We're, you know, we're all talking about a potential shutdown after what's been going on even today with that failed vote in the House on uh, military funding uh, getting cloture, uh, or at least moving through that procedural vote, Kaylee. But the argument for Ukraine funding yeah. is pretty loud today, too. Yeah. He's on the Pentagon for the first time, then he's going to the White House later on. But you talk to a lot of lawmakers who have a lot of different views on whether we're going to shut down a week from tomorrow. I did. I mean, I talked to some of those hardliners, including Republican Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, who told me there will not be sufficient Republican votes for a continuing resolution. And then he went on to say, we've if they have moderate Republicans who want to join up with Democrats, they'll be signing their own political death warrant. So I think that just speaks to the mood among some Republicans on the Hill right now. But to your point, Joe, of Ukraine being one thing and funding battles being another, I would argue that they are tied because one of those that flipped on McCarthy, one of the individuals who decided not to vote for the DOD funding bill, was Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I asked her why outside the Capitol. And she said, I wanted Ukraine funding out of that. They should have spun it off into a separate bill I could have voted no for. They didn't do that. So I voted no on the rule and I'll vote no on the bill. Michael McCall, meantime, says, fine, we'll write it into the budget for next yeah. year. He mm-hmm. was talking to reporters earlier as well. Right now, as troops are going in with no air cover, they have to take the mines by hand at nighttime. We wouldn't send our troops into that situation. So we need to give them everything they need. If this administration won't give it to them, then I submitted that we write it in our appropriations bill. We write the, wep- the weapons that he asked for that this administration won't give. We write that in our appropriations bill. And I think the Democrats at the table, whether it be Steny Hoyer to Nancy Pelosi to uh, the, the whip and Chairman uh, Mr. Meeks, we all agree. Nancy Pelosi still in charge of that? You were in that <laughs> uh, in that scrum. He was just emerging from his meeting with yes. Vladimir Zelensky. Correct, that he was there with Speaker McCarthy. And he said that Speaker McCarthy did press Zelensky on the accountability question that a lot of lawmakers have been raising, but that also McCarthy has been strong in his support for Ukraine. And he was asked about that $24 billion uh, in supplemental funding for Ukraine that the White House has asked for if it'll pass. And McCall seemed pretty firm that Ukraine is going to get that aid, that the House is going to make that happen. It just might be kind of hard to get that done, given the rhetoric we're hearing from some other members. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It was not only uh, McCall, by the way, who was talking about his meeting with Zelensky in the other chamber. We heard from Senator Chuck Schumer. Let me just, there was a single sentence that summed it all up, and I'm quoting him verbatim. Mr. Zelensky said, if we don't get the aid, we will lose the war. That's a quote from him. Was there pushback from Republicans in that room? No answer (laughs) to the questions. Let's bring in Brett Bruin. I've been looking forward to it. The president of the Global Situation Room, former U.S. diplomat in the Obama administration, is with us right now. uh, And a reliable voice. When it comes to Ukraine, and of course, all geopolitical matters. Brett, it's great to have you back. We spent so much time talking about this war effort in the run up to war, in the execution, going through the counteroffensive and now the fight for money. Does this visit 
make a difference for President Zelensky? Well, I have to say, Joe, it could not have come at a more important time as they are hashing out not just, you know, questions overall of government funding, but very specifically, will they authorize those $24 billion that the Biden administration is asking for? And it is hard to look Zelensky in the face, to see that uh, pain on his face and to turn him down. And I think uh, it will be more difficult tomorrow and in the coming days for uh, many Republicans to hold that line that somehow our support, that $100 billion or so, is not being well spent, when you see the sacrifice, you see the bravery that Ukrainians are demonstrating on the battlefield. Well, when we talk about what we see, I wonder what kind of message it sends, at least optically, for someone on the outside looking in like Vladimir Putin to see when Vladimir Zelensky was walking into the House meeting, he was flanked only by the Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries. He was not there uh, being walked, escorted in by Speaker McCarthy. And I feel like that just visually also underscores some of the discord we are seeing. How does that play? Yeah, Kaylee, I think this is really important to remind folks here in Washington that every appearance of doubt, division is an opportunity for Moscow, and they will exploit it to the fullest. When I was at the White House back in 2013, 2014, focused on Russian propaganda, they take those sound bites and they amplify them. So I think it's really important for leaders on both sides of the aisle to be responsible with their questions. Yes, we should make sure that our money's being well spent. We shouldn't just write blank checks, but at the same time, you know, this notion that somehow we're just not going to send any more support, that hits really hard in the trenches of Eastern Ukraine. So how's this going to end? He's making uh, his trip through Congress, stopping by the Pentagon, and then talking to the president, Brett. It's that first visit that's really going to matter. He did get with Speaker McCarthy. And to your point, it does seem that being in person maybe loosened up the mood a little bit with some of the limited commentary that we've heard from Kevin McCarthy. But this is probably not going to be part of a continuing resolution. What can President Zelensky actually get done today? I, I think it's really important at the White House that President Biden and his team start to articulate what does success look like. We want 24 billion extra dollars, and this is um, what we think that we can see in the coming months in terms of progress, because up until now, it has just been one announcement of more money after another. And I think Republicans are taking advantage of that. They're exploiting the fact that you know the administration says, we'll just send more money over. We've got to start looking at what are those goals? What does success look like? And I think that will help to ensure that everyone remains focused on what all of this is for. Well, on that subject of defining success, Brett, when Congressman McCall came out of that House meeting and was talking uh, uh, to a group of us reporters, he said that this can't be a war of attrition, that there needs to be a plan for victory and it needs to happen quickly. And the speed of things was something he kept coming back to. Also, the idea that Ukraine just isn't getting weapons fast enough, even if the U.S. agrees to send them, that the, the process is just too slow. What What's your take on that? Even if, you know, OK, here, Ukraine, you can have what you want. But it still has to get to those front lines. It has to get there to start making a real difference. And I just wonder if if it is too slow to make a difference. And I agree, Kaylee. I think we are in this situation where over the last year and a half, you know, Ukraine has had to go down a laundry list of asks. 
every time uh, the administration here in Washington saying, ah, I don't think so, only to reverse course, that chews up valuable time. It chews up valuable resources that could be spent on executing a strategy, on getting further support. So I really hope as we head, unfortunately, towards that two-year mark, there is an effort to articulate these are the things that we're going to need in order to get to where we think we could be a year from now. And that helps, I think, everyone across the NATO alliance to understand what they have to show up with, because right now it's kind of like a potluck meal. <laughs> We're talking with Brett Bruin at the Global Situation Room. Brett, I've got to ask you about what's happening in Poland. This, of course, Ukraine's neighbor, uh, whose premier says the country is halting weapons supplies to Ukraine. We are no longer, this is a direct quote, transferring weapons to Ukraine because we are now arming Poland with more modern weapons. Went on to say his government has no intention to, quote, risk the security of Ukraine, unquote, and will not interfere with arms shipments from other countries through this country that, of course, has become uh, the hub for, for these transfers. How much of a problem is this? And is this coming down to a personal dispute between Poland and Ukraine? Well, look, Poland also has an election coming up. Some of this is domestic politics. But what I will say is that it raises the challenge of uh, our defense production capabilities, both here in the U.S., but particularly in Europe. And I don't think that enough has been done to ramp those up because we've been sending an extraordinary amount of uh, arms and, and weapon systems over to Ukraine. We have to backfill those. We have to expand capacity, not only you know in the European theater, but obviously we have a significant threat that is developing over uh, in the uh, Taiwan Strait. So we've got to focus on a broader strategy. And I think we've been too myopically looking at some of these issues. You know, I, I served in Iraq as a diplomat with an army commander who was saying you can be so focused on the problem that you miss the threat. And I think mm -hmm. we are really focused on Ukraine. We've got to ensure that our European allies also have what they need. So on the subject of, of the threat, those who are proponents of continuing to help Ukraine in this war to continue to provide funding essentially see anything that is giving in in any way or, or relenting in, you know, the battle against uh, Russia is sending signals elsewhere to, I don't know, places like China. Brett, what do you think about that? Not just that the signals that whatever is happening in the U.S. Uh, is sending to the Kremlin, to Vladimir Putin, but to others as well, other adversaries. Well, on, on the positive note, I actually think that Beijing has been given more reason for pause when it comes to a potential invasion of Taiwan, because they have seen the way that the West came together. And while uh, certainly there are critiques of uh, the slowness with which it happened, I think now the fact that it has happened, that we do have a model for how we come together as a community of democracies in support of a nation that's threatened is important. Nonetheless, and this is where, you know, when I talk about the post-American era, I think you need only look as far as places like India, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, not to mention some of, you know, the other major adversary challenges. And what we're seeing is an effort to try and disrupt the old order to take advantage of places where the U.S., and you know our um, European allies are disengaging. Africa certainly being a, a big one. I, I worry that uh, we are going to see over the coming years 
efforts that will create more friction. There will be uh, more instability. And I think for listeners on Bloomberg Radio, one of the challenges is that crises, global crises, will become more common. What we're seeing play out right now between Armenia and Azerbaijan is only going to multiply. This is quite a headline, uh, Brett Bruin, in the New York Times today. Zelensky tells U.N. Security Council it's useless while Russia has a veto. When you consider that, the fact that so many world leaders did not attend uh, the U.N. General Assembly this week, Xi, Putin, Macron, uh, Sunak, I could keep going here. And, and that was supposed to advantage Joe Biden. When you, when you step back here and look at the General Assembly at this point, is it broken? I, I think there are a lot of broken parts and pieces in the UN system. It was never perfect, but it was designed to prevent the kind of conflicts uh, that are now playing out, particularly in Ukraine. And the fact that the UN Security Council has been so impeded in, in taking any action really demands that we look at, at how we come up with new systems. How can we create new structures? Because what we have certainly isn't working. And, and this week up in New York at the UN General Assembly has laid bare how irrelevant uh, the UN system has become, not just on these conflicts, but even in response to the global food crisis, to climate change, to a whole host of other challenges. So I think it's incumbent upon um, the democracies of the world to come up with a new structure. We need essentially a NATO for democracy. We need something that's broader than just a North Atlantic alliance, because that's what the challenges of the world demand today. Well, I think we just uh, you just named your calling, Brett. That's going to be your next job. I'll look forward to it. He's the president of the Global Situation Room, where I'm pretty sure he's got his hands full already, Kaylee. Yeah. I could I could see Brett Bruin uh, leading this uh, Commission for Democracy. It's great to have you back, Brett, joining us from the Global Situation Room, as always, on Bloomberg Radio. He's not done. Zelensky continues the rounds today in the Capitol. Yeah, he should be shortly at the White House with President Biden. Not doing the whole formal arrival today. They're just sitting down to meet. Uh, we'll have details on that coming up as well. I'm Joe Matthew, along with Kaylee Lyons. Glad you're with us on Bloomberg Sound On, on the radio and on YouTube, and of course, only on Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. They've confirmed another in the U.S. Senate, 96 to 1. How about that for General Randy George, the next Army Chief of Staff? And you're saying, what happened to the blockade? Well, it's still in place. Uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama still blocking more than 300 military officer promotions here in his seemingly never-ending objection to the Pentagon's abortion travel policy. And I say another because the big one uh, came down 
just a short time ago, it was late yesterday actually, C.Q. Brown, next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Senator Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, made this decision to bring them to the floor to get around the blockade and spoke about it earlier today. These men should have already been confirmed. They should already be serving in their new positions. The Senate should not have to go through procedural hoops just to please one brazen and misguided senator. But this is where we are. Bloomberg caught up with that senator uh, earlier this morning outside the chamber. Here's Tommy Tuberville. Problem is, we've been doing this for seven months. We could have been doing a few a week, but uh, they refused to do it because they didn't think they were wrong. Well, they're dead wrong on this. And so the American people on a controversial subject like this, abortion, need to have their voice heard through their senator and congressman. Um, it doesn't need to be dictated from the White House with a memo or the Pentagon. So uh, we have a hold now. It's still on around 300 uh, promotions. They need to be promoted, but that's up to Schumer. If he wants to bring them to the floor, we'll confirm it. Which could take the better part of the rest of this year, based at least on what uh, Democrats are suggesting. Tuberville seems to think it would move a little bit quicker than that. Let's reassemble the panel for their take. John Sidalides at Trilogy Advisors and Lincoln Mitchell political analyst, lecturer of the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia University. Uh, John, this, I guess, is setting some sort of precedent. It's what Chuck Schumer said he didn't want to do and said he wouldn't do. But the military does now have at least a top commander in the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Was it the right move? I don't know if it's the right move, Joe. I think what this really comes down to is there's two different issues, I think, at play here. One is obviously this procedural issue involving abortion, right? A very, very uh, polarizing issue in American politics. But clearly, Chuck Schumer had the ability to allow for each nominee to be debated. It just would have chewed up an enormous amount of time on the Senate floor. And so Senator Tuberville uh, exploited Senate rules, which give great powers to each senator to hold up debate to pursue policies that he or she may wish to. And as he's, uh, I think, effectively done, he pointed out the fact that Senator Duckworth had done the same thing with, uh, I think, 1,100 promotions back in 2020 over the issue of Alexander Vindman. So uh, Tuberville is exercising the leverage that's available to him on this issue. But I think there's a larger constitutional issue here that I think is more important to the American people, and that is, can the executive branch unilaterally change legislation that affects executive branch policy decisions? So in this case, the Defense Department allowing for uh, paid travel for service members to have abortions. And uh, that is something that the Senate and the House have already voted on in the past, and they prohibit that. So can the executive branch override congressional legislation without the vote of the people? And I think this is going to be an important precedent for other very polarizing issues in the months and years to come. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Lincoln, Tuberville says just bring that policy to the floor. And it's kind of I guess it's unknown right now what would happen. You can speak to the vote here that that just took place for these two uh, confirmations. I know that you are not a fan of the Tuberville blockade and a lot of lawmakers get very upset. By the way, that's Democrats and Republicans who believe this is impacting military readiness and that it's the wrong way to make a point on this. But does Chuck Schumer have the votes if he actually brought it to the floor to defend that policy? I think we need to be careful about uh, some of the sleight of hand that Tuberville is using here. Abortion is not a controversial issue. Access to abortion early in a pregnancy is an opinion that a majority of Americans support. The reason it's controversial is because the minority that opposes that idea is overrepresented in the U.S. Senate and number of state legislatures 
and in the Supreme Court. So to say this is an issue about which Americans, you know, are are completely polarized is a bit misleading. And we should we should remember that if you were to go to the floor with this bill, you would have, however, it was phrased the House voting along party lines saying you should not be able to travel to get an abortion if you're in the military and the Senate saying you should. And then the president, if possible, vetoing it to, you know, depending on how on how the, the, the yes or the no's were phrased. We know that's how it would go. We know this is now an issue that is essentially a party line issue. The point to underscore for Tuberville, and he's right, we could have a long debate about every single one of these appointees and the Senate could do nothing else. Uh, you know, for a party that's happy to shut down the government, maybe that works. But the point to underscore for Tuberville and anyone who supports him is that, that the position then is that the national security of the United States is less important than women in the military being able to have reproductive freedom. And look, that's a policy dispute. Not everyone's going to see it my way on that. I understand that. But that is the position. And, you know, the legislative pyrotechnics of Chuck Schumer or Tommy Tuberville or the military or the Biden administration has to work around that. But that is the position that Tuberville is saying. And again, he's entitled to have that position. But, you know, this is from a party that for as long as I remember lectured me because I wasn't tough enough on national security and didn't care enough. Well, they don't seem to care so much either. Was the issue of military readiness... Uh, there's also the matter of military families, uh, John, who are in many cases are living in temporary housing. Their kids didn't start the mm -hmm. school year the way they were supposed to because they thought they were moving. Uh, one of the parents in that house is not getting an anticipated pay raise because of it. This is why people are questioning, uh, I guess, the morality, if I can use that term, of, of Tuberville's approach. What what should be said about these military families, just the, the cost of being in the military? Unfortunately, they're caught up in the vise of this debate, and uh, mm -hmm. there's a trade-off involved here in every type of a decision, whether it comes to policy, legislation, or regulation, and there's never going to be a perfect solution. I mean, I can't speak for Senator Tuberville as to what the impact is on these families and to what extent he is sympathetic to their plight. But he clearly feels strongly enough about this, as do the voters in his state and as do the voters in a number of other states whose senators may support him, even as there are those that oppose him. So this is the democratic process. Sometimes it's ugly and there are very human consequences to it. But uh, this is the price that some lawmakers are willing to pay to achieve their objectives. Well, that's clear with Tommy Tuberville. I just wonder if Chuck Schumer right. uh, just made it less likely for him to drop this blockade. By putting these votes on the floor, we will not know, of course, until he makes that decision, if a decision is made. Uh, John, thanks for the time today. John Sidalides at Trilogy Advisors. Lincoln Mitchell stays with us for some final thoughts straight ahead here on the fastest show in politics. You know, they found the wreckage of that missing F-35 this week. Now the eyewitnesses are coming forward. That's next on Sound On, only on Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We're still waiting to learn more about this F-35 stealth fighter jet that went missing, remember, in South Carolina after the pilot ejected a couple of days ago. Now, we, we told you they did find wreckage from that jet in a field uh, that was outside of the area they were even looking in. So apparently this thing flew for a minute. Still not sure why it wasn't pinging anyone or why it was so hard to find. Remember, they had to actually put out a phone number to ask for the public's help on this. And eyewitnesses are now emerging. 
One woman in Williamsburg County, where the plane went down, tells NBC News that she and her family, they're out there having a little time in the backyard. They saw it go almost inverted just before it crashed. And Randolph White, also from Williamsburg County, he heard the jet when it was going down right over his house. He says he was inside shaving. And if you ever imagine what that sounded like, tried to imagine well, imagine no longer. I heard a, a screeching, saw that between a screech and a whistle. I said, what in the world is this? Yeah. And I heard a boom. Then my whole house shook. His whole house shook. He says he didn't realize it was a plane at the time. He thought it was a meteorite. So he didn't call anyone. Lincoln Mitchell, I don't know how you lose a stealth fighter, but with men like that, at least we know what they sound like. That's right. And that's the beauty of radio. Um, I'm not an expert on military aviation. However, I do recall being on Bloomberg Radio a few months ago where I was asked about UFOs. So I'm not saying anything, but maybe we should try to explore that connection. I don't know how the military loses an airplane. I'm glad that gentleman who was shaving, I hope he didn't cut himself or anything like that. I mean, obviously, I hope everyone's okay. I knew I could count on you. Lincoln, it's great to have you as always. Don't be a stranger. Lincoln Mitchell, political analyst. He lectures at the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia University. And here's a little something you might not know. Lincoln writes a substack on baseball and politics. And you got to check it out. It's called Kibitzing with Lincoln, of course. How about Randolph White? Can we do that again? I heard a a screeching. Saw that between a screech and a whistle. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.